When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. This is Football Social Daily, a daily Premier League podcast from Sports Social. You can find out more about what we do and discover more podcasts at sport-social.co.uk. But today is all about the Premier League, as it is every single day on this show. This is the only podcast with daily news straight from the top flight of English football. Here's what we're looking at today. There's just under two months and 10-ish games to go in the Premier League. And it's been a massive weekend in terms of results at both ends of the table. We're going to be using this point with one quarter of the season to go to see exactly where we're at, who's going to be staying up, who's going to be going down and how significant Manchester City's draw with Liverpool was in the title race yesterday. And could Manchester United be about to stuff up the appointment of their new boss again? Could Dutchman Ten Hag be about to slip through the Reds' fingers? We'll talk about the competition that is hotting up for his services on today's podcast as well. And as it's Monday, it's also Moan Day too. Get in the sea is a chance to vent about something from the weekend or as it's now been cheekily rebranded, are you taking the <laughs> We're going to be having a bit of a whinge about the weekend's action shortly. The man responsible for that rebrand is in the studio. Niall, how are you doing? Are you pleased <laughs> with your rebranding of it? I am, but actually having listened to the Roy Hodgson interview back last week when I was editing the show, <laughs> I realised that he actually says, let's not take the Oh, right, so actually, okay. I don't know I, if the yeah, title works. I didn't want to point that out at the time. I thought I was just going to let. Oh, Niall you should have done. You should have made me sit on that for a week. Now I feel it's, bad about it. An, so another rebrand. It's like oh, it's like <laughs> Snickers rebranding why to Marathon. We, doesn't feel right. <laughs> why don't we ask the listeners to come up with a good name for it? What's wrong with getting the sea? Nothing wrong with getting in the sea. That's the point. That's the point I've been making right. since we started the feature. The sea's a good thing. Okay, well, if you've got any suggestions, at the Sports Social is the place to contact us on Twitter. Sports Social official everywhere else. The man that reads those messages is Marley Anderson. He's on the podcast as well. You're right, Marley. Hello, yes, very good. Um, especially as I'm the only one in the office this week whose team won at the weekend. So happy days. Very good. Was that? Oh, yeah, you are. We won on Friday. You lost on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Team lost on Saturday. <laughs> wow, there to we a go. Race course. So, <laughs> a happy Marley Anderson for once. We'll talk about. <laughs> we'll talk about things that make us less happy shortly. We will be doing getting the seal, whatever we're going to call it, in a little bit. But let's talk about where the Premier League is right now, because there's pretty much ten games to go. Because of all the disruptions in this season, it's not the case for all teams. Some teams have less, some teams have more. But there or thereabouts, there is one quarter left of the season. And this weekend was significant at both ends of the table. Let's start with the top of the table because the big talking point from the weekend, the game that was billed as the title decider and actually lived up to the billing for once was Manchester City versus Liverpool. Slogged it out for a 2-2 draw. It was said this was going to be a title decider, Niall, but how much impact does a 2-2 draw, or any draw for that matter, have on the title race and where we are now in terms of who could win the Premier League? 
Well, it's as you were, isn't it? And I think that that's now actually seven games to go for, for City and Liverpool. 38 games in a season, I make it. So um, seven games left for them and, and eight for Chelsea and actually I think nine for Leicester who have the most left. But you're right, a quarter of the season to go. And, Ish, I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did say that in all fairness. But um, we were all looking at this game with such excitement and so often the build-up to these games kind of overhypes mm. the outcome and the end result and they're never as exciting as all of the build-up um, deems them to possibly be. But this was a complete um, opposite to that. It was a brilliant game of football. Thoroughly enjoyed it as a neutral watching it. It felt so exciting. I couldn't imagine what it would be be like to be a Liverpool or Manchester City fan in that environment, in that stadium. They were the only on... two sets of fans that didn't enjoy it because they couldn't. They yeah, were just, exactly. They were just bricking it. They were hanging on every kick and, and there was a, you know, a palpable tension in the air. It was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I think what it does do is it shows how far ahead these two sides are from the rest of the Premier League. Mm. You know, and we talk about a title race. The fact that we were considering the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United as possible title contenders at the start of the season just shows how short-sighted we are at the start of every single season. We always say, what about these teams? Could they come through and win the title? But having watched that game yesterday, they're comfortably the two best teams in the country. And I can see why they're two sides competing on all fronts. And there's no doubt about it. Obviously, a lot of people have kind of cringed a little bit about this alleged rivalry between City and Liverpool. But I think... The key word is respect. They both absolutely respect each other. And talking about the build-up to this game, everyone was saying whoever wins this will win the title, which mm. I think is a fair comment, but no one was ever plumping for the draw, which I thought was very strange because there was a, a high likelihood that these two teams could draw. That's exactly what's happened. And I could just say that I do like a... It's called a tipsters thing where you predict the results of every Premier League game and I predicted a draw for this one. You did well it then. It just felt like it was going Congratulations. to be a draw. Thank you. You've That's got a 33% right. chance. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> in 31, right. 31 weeks he's got one right but he got there. And Jim wants his prayers. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yep. good on you Jim. Well done. Um, but yeah, it leaves us as you were and then it, it leaves us to kind of forensically analyse the two teams respective run-ins Liverpool have got some tough games they've still got Manchester United to play which you'd think they should beat them really considering mm. the form that United have been in but there's a rivalry there likewise Everton they always beat Everton always but Everton are scrapping um, they look a little bit safer than they were I'm sure we'll come on to that but you know there's another derby match to be played there and actually Liverpool's running looks a little bit tougher on paper yeah, but Manchester to St James's as well yeah where... Not many have won recently. so Yeah, so they've got some tough games. But for, for Manchester City, they've got what would be perceived as an easier run-in. But we know Manchester City sometimes slip up in the most unlikely of places. They'll lose to Crystal Palace. Has or... anyone got Crystal Palace? Yeah. <laughs> That's the key, I think. I don't know. The I don't spoilers. Know. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a case of as you were. I do think Manchester City will be happier with the point. In terms of the context of the title race, it just means that that's one fewer opportunity mm. for Liverpool to try and claw back that single point that they trail by. So brilliant game of football yesterday. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it would have made it a tad more exciting had Raheem Sterling's goal to make it 3-2 have stood. I'm not going to get into the into the details and nuts and bolts of the VAR decisions and the offsides and all of that. But I think 2-2 um, is reflective of... of in general, where these two sides have been over the last few years, and it sets us up nicely for the final seven games. In terms of that rivalry that Niall talks about, Marley, it's not the fiercest rivalry from a fan's proposition or the team slogging it out on the pitch. It's not like Manchester United versus Arsenal back in the mid-90s. But in terms of quality, is this the best rival we've seen in the Premier League? In terms of the levels that Liverpool and City have two teams at their peak at the same time. It's not something we've seen particularly often, is it? 
No, it's not. Um, I think I was thinking about this a little bit last night, and I, I think I just about come down on the side of I think it is, because even though like Man United and Arsenal in the sort of late nineties and first three or four years of the two thousands, that was like a, a proper iconic um, rivalry. You know, Keane versus Vieira. Um, it was Henri ferocious. Yeah, yeah. Henri and Burkamp versus Cole and York and and Solskjaer and whoever, and there was loads of like. Um, nostalgia off the back of that, and we we still talk about it to this day. Every time I'm struggling for a for a social media post, I just put, "Remember that time when Keenan Vieira nearly <laughs> batted each other?" And everyone's like, "Oh yeah, remember that? Yeah, it's brilliant." And it's like, but now I think it's always harder to to analyze something when it's happening now because mm, yeah. only time sort of tells how uh, how things are remembered. Um, and in ten years' time or fifteen years' time, when one of these teams might be off the the pace and the other one might not have won a league title in seven or eight years people will maybe remember it as as uh as either amazing or or not cracked up to what it's what it's like used to be but mm. the um the thing that brings it home for me is is the stat that's been going around for a few weeks i posted it a couple of weeks ago on um on our twitter account and it was the amount of points that the, the clubs have taken yeah. over the past four years and there i think they were i worked out last night there were 71 points ahead of whoever was third. I think Chelsea were third um, in the most points taken over the last four seasons. So that means Man City and Chelsea, could, uh, sorry, Man City and Liverpool could probably have a whole season off and Chelsea still might not get the 70-odd points <laughs> they needed to, 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 to catch wow. them up. So that's how far they are ahead. That's That puts it into context. And there's one point separating them between four four years of football and the, 70, the, the 71 and 70 points clear of Chelsea who've managed to still take like 260 odd points or whatever it is it's absolutely mental mm. the, the level so judging by that I would say this is the, the highest quality rivalry if you want to call it that, yeah. that that there's ever been in my opinion Do you know what it reminds me of and we've obviously had the Masters golf this week over the last four days concluded on Sunday and it reminded me of having watched Tiger Woods kind of come back from his car crash and play golf at the weekend it reminded me of when Tiger Woods was first like exploding into golf and he was the best golfer on the planet. Mm. And there were so many really good golfers that were kind of coming up through and competing with him, but he was just that little bit better than everyone levels. else. Just a different like Joe Luma as well in rugby. And it, exactly. I mean, you get these people that redefine what like, excellence is. Phil Mickelson is a fantastic golfer, but he was kind of in Tiger Woods' shadow for a long mm. time in sort of that period that Marley says, the late 90s, early 2000s, and Tiger was just a step ahead. And it feels like that with Manchester City and Liverpool. Liverpool aren't significantly worse than Manchester City, and the stat proves that. There's a point difference in four seasons. That is insane. Mm. And obviously they lost out a Premier League title by the margin of one point when they had 97 points and they didn't win the league. And I think that that is just the levels that Klopp and Guardiola have gone to. And I think that is why there's, there is a mutual respect between them. City have just edged it with the titles, with the trophies and by the margin of one point as we see now. But I think that one thing that Marley's right on is that presentism. I totally agree with him there because it's it's a case of when you're in the here and now, you don't, you don't consider things as mm. maybe you would do with a different perspective a few years down the line. I think the hostility is what's missing, maybe. You know, there's not a hatred between the two teams. There's a mutual respect. There's a real competitive edge. Mm. But like Arsenal and United, they just want to knock seven bells yeah. out of each other. From every position, from manager downwards, it's yeah. like it was proper rivalry. Yeah, but whereas this is a proper rivalry, but it's different. You know, you see Klopp and 
Guardiola sort of shaking hands fiercely after the game and De Bruyne and Van Dijk going up to each other straight after the match. You know, there's two sort of fierce foes during the 90 minutes and I think I read a post somewhere that their kids go to school together and they kind of <laughs> hang out together, yeah. Van Dijk's kids and De Bruyne's kids. So it's it's the game's different now and I think mm. we need to respect that as well. The game isn't the same as it was 20 years ago. So that, that needs to be taken into account as well. I think it's slightly unimaginable that potentially one of these teams could go without a major trophy as well. If we're not counting the Carabao Cup as a major trophy, they're both obviously still in the Champions League and they're both still in the Premier League, still both in the FA Cup, but potentially one could win all and the other one could go away empty-handed, which seems unfathomable considering the levels they've been at this season. At the other end of the table, it was a big weekend as well. The most notable result was probably Norwich beating Burnley 1-0. Where does that leave Burnley now, Marley? Is that a mountain to climb in terms of survival? Yeah, massively. Um <laughs> thought you were going to say, leaves them 18th. Well, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're not beating Norwich, you know, you might as well have not beaten Everton at the weekend, mm. uh, in midweek, sorry. So I think there, I mean, I was looking, obviously, when Newcastle won on, on um, Friday night, I was thinking... Like what's the gap between them and Burnley now? Because I expected Burnley to beat Norwich, and it would have been, it would have been six points. Um, or before the weekend, it could have been like six points. But it's ten now, and I'm pretty happy with that. Like in terms of how how it affects uh, Newcastle. But looking at Burnley, it's like, you know, the 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 fixtures are in their favour. You know, Everton, you win Everton, you beat Everton, that's huge. And then you go to Norwich and you just get outplayed, and it was like. I didn't expect that because you expect you always expect Burnley to get better when everyone else is sort of starting to think right we're done this season you know we've, mm. we're all right you know the likes of the mid-table mediocrity gang like Villa and Southampton and people like that they're all just on the beach almost but you know and even Norwich you could probably say Norwich are probably done because they they even they believe they're down and Norwich turned up and were like no nope, we're still fighting um, because Norwich are only three points behind Burnley now. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's if, too much for them, though, isn't it? Seven points. Yeah, it off is safety. It's not going to happen. I think it is. Yeah, but I mean, it it looks like Burnley. Uh, well, the, looks like they're going to go now because you know they're four points off uh, off Everton. They're nine points behind Leeds, ten points behind Newcastle. So that's a that's a hell of a task for for uh, Sean Dyche to to overcome. Um, and I'm quite glad Newcastle played the part in it by taking Chris Wood in January um, because the Premier League has had too long with Burnley in it. I don't, I don't <laughs> like... I'd, do you know what? It's not even like the style of play or anything. It's the fact that they've not tried for long. Um, they've not they've not tried to spend any money. They've, they've not changed at all. There's been no... Um, there's no attempt to evolve. Um, Sean Dyche has never seriously been linked with another job. So nobody's even like looking at him and going, you know, he'd do a good job at uh, a slightly bigger club with a bigger budget and stuff like that. No one's ever looked at them. They're just sort of ignored. And then, mm. you know, they turn someone over and go, oh, bloody hit Burnley. And then they play your team every week and they, they turn up and play the same way as they have for the last eight years. And you go, oh, I hit, I hit playing Burnley and stuff like that. But if they do go down, they'll probably come straight back. Um, and we'll be having this <laughs> discussion again in two years' time of whether they can... Uh, they can do something different and survive the next time they come up. But, um, yeah, it is looking pretty bleak for them now. Four wins all season is lower than anyone else. And if you win fewer games than everyone else, you deserve to get relegated. 
clearly you're going to be upsetting Sean Dyche. I can hear him emailing emails of complaint to Niall as we speak. <laughs> He's still on faxes, uh, <laughs> Sean Dyche. Let's talk about the final piece of the puzzle, I guess, in terms of what's going to be decided then, because top four is probably the other question that needs answering. And Spurs went a long way to securing their position as that final we're assuming it's City, Liverpool, Chelsea. I think that's kind of the assumption that's being made. And then there's that fourth piece that could be Tottenham or Arsenal or West Ham, maybe, or Manchester United. I think Wolves are probably out of it at the moment. But would you say, Niall, that Tottenham have kind of put a stake in the ground in terms of their results and in terms of how Conte's done over the last few weeks? He's Something's happened at Spurs where they just look like a different team now. I think so, because on the dugout, on Friday night with Dean Hammond and Francis Benali, I asked the question, do you think Arsenal are still in pole position for the top four? They are behind Tottenham. They were in fifth going into this weekend. They did have a game in hand, but they ended up losing their game against Brighton. West Ham, they lost against Brentford. Mm. Manchester United lost against Everton. Yet Tottenham did their end of the bargain. They won their game. And now the gap between themselves in fourth and West Ham in, and Manchester United in sixth and seventh, respectively, is six points. Now, where's that come from? It's just simply because, like what we've said on the podcast all season, no one seems to want this top four spot. Everyone seems to throw it away. I mean, the question again was asked on the dugout. You know, this Arsenal side were beaten handsomely by Crystal Palace. They didn't ever look in the game. You know, they were swept aside by Vieira's side last Monday night. And the question was, can this young group of Arsenal players, can they hack the pressure? And that pressure intensified again this weekend and they were beaten by Brighton. And so Tottenham have been allowed a sniff. Antonio Conte, I'm sure, can smell blood and he needs to capitalise. And I think he'll be slightly nervous as well. I think he'll be happy, definitely, with the way things have gone. But he knows that this side are capable to the odd banana skin when you when you really don't want it. So as much as Tottenham have established a, a really healthy sort of three-point gap over Arsenal, there's still that North London derby to play at, and Arsenal still have a game in hand. So that could, it could still come down to that. If Arsenal don't pick up form in the next couple of games, I don't know when that North London derby is. I don't think it's 12th of May. Right, okay, so there's another month to go. And the week before that, Tottenham go to Liverpool. Right. So if you you assume they drop points there, then an Arsenal pick up, you know, it could be within three points of each other. It's still a lot to be decided. Like you said, you know, said at the start of the show. They play each other as well. Like you look at Arsenal's run, like you said, they've got the North London derby, they've also got Chelsea to play, they've still got Manchester United to play, they've got West Ham to play as well. So, I mean, there's there's points to be picked up off each other in this running. Like you said, you know, seven games to go, like you said at the start of the show. This is the final piece of the puzzle, the top four race, because I think it's the hardest one to call. I yeah, really do. And it always goes down to the last day. Like I said on podcast last week, I think there's almost, it's almost irrelevant talking about it because it doesn't get solved until at least at least two weeks to the end of the season. So we can sit here on match week 30, well, we just had match week 32, and it won't get settled until the minimum match week 37. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's so much twists and turns still to come. But that North London derby on the 12th of May is, yeah. is huge. It's after the game at the weekend of, with Liverpool and City, that's the biggest game of the season uh, out of anyone. Well, let's have a look at that, that final day of the season, Sunday the 22nd of May. Arsenal are at home to Everton now presuming that Everton keep that four point gap it might be slightly less 
pressurised than you'd expect. But if mm. Everton gets sucked back into it, that could be a massive game. Mm. Brighton against West Ham. And then it's Crystal Palace versus Manchester United. There, Crystal Palace could overtake Man United if, some, if everything carries on right now. Uh, and Spurs have got Norwich away. I mean, they could be fighting for something. No, they've just beaten Burnley Norwich. So, again, it's, it's so hard to call. You'd think now, like you say, a quarter of the season to go, we'd be able to, to sort of stick a pin in a board and say, this is what's going to happen. These teams are going to stay up. This is who is going to finish in the top four. But it's just so hard to call, which mm. is what makes the Premier League so exciting. And you can keep up to date with everything that goes on over the next seven games, six weeks, whatever you want to call it, on Football Social Daily and via the website sport-social.co.uk. We're going to be talking about one of those top four contenders next. Manchester United and their race to sign a new manager. Could they be facing opposition to the potential recruitment of Ten Hag? We'll talk about it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. There is news in the Telegraph today that RB Leipzig want to hijack Manchester United's attempt to sign Ten Hag as their next manager. Ten Hag has been leading the race, reportedly amongst players and some fans as well, favouring him as the next potential manager of Manchester United when Ralph Rangnick steps down as interim manager. We believe that's the case. It's interesting, this one, Marley, because RB Leipzig, you wouldn't think were a contender for a manager's signature over a club with the status of Manchester United. But maybe I'm looking that, at that through the rose-tinted spectacles of mid-90s Premier League football. <laughs> Are we in a position now where actually RB Leipzig is an appealing prospect when you compare it to the difficult job at Manchester United that would face a new manager? Um, I don't think so, because if you look at what the job is at Leipzig, it's to close the gap on um, on Bayern in the Bundesliga. So, you know, it's to establish yourself as the second best, whereas at Man United, it's probably to establish, to be fair, it's probably to establish yourself as the third best in the short term. But mm. long term, it would be to get back and fighting with uh, Man City and Liverpool. That's their long term <laughs> objective. It seems like an absolute you know, light years away right mm, now. But but that is the long term aim. They want to be they spend enough to get to, to compete there. Um so they need a manager to match that. And I think Leipzig, even though it's an attractive opposition uh, proposition, it's not something that could tempt anyone away from Man United, I don't think. I think you don't you you wouldn't get many chances to become Man United manager. And I think if you chose if you chose Leipzig over Man U as an Ajax boss you, I think it's the wrong choice. I think you've got to back yourself and take a chance when it comes because if you think about a, a manager that gets sacked by Man United, you could easily see someone who's been sacked by Man United going to a Leipzig, couldn't you? It's mm. not a, it's, you know, but if you get sacked by Leipzig, you couldn't, you wouldn't go to Man United. It's it's like there's a, there's a, there's levels to it. And I think, you know, the challenge of, of getting Man United back into that Firstly, the top four, and then ultimately, eventually, the uh, the title race is um, is one that people shouldn't turn down. And Ten Hag, to be fair, I think this is just a bit of paper talk and a bit just to. I think everyone's getting bored of it now, and the um, waiting for the announcements, waiting for the end of the season. Yeah, you, you see this with um, transfers as well. When everyone knows, like Sancho's going to Man United, like last summer, for example, 
all of a sudden there was like reports like, oh, Real Madrid might be about to hijack it. And they never were. It was just paper talk to rush it along a bit. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if this was a similar case. Well, is that the case then, Niall? Did Manchester United need to get this done? Because they run the risk of messing up their managerial appointment again, which seems to have happened time and time again. Do they need to pull their finger out and just decide what's going to happen now with a view to hitting that summer transfer window and planning for next season as soon as they can rather than waiting to the end of the season then protracted contract negotiations and opposition from other clubs coming in and people vying for signatures and all that kind of thing? In my personal opinion, I certainly think that the quicker they can get it done, the better it will be. I think the fans need a boost. I think a lot of supporters can't wait for the season to end to be frank, um, especially after the weekend's performance mm. against Everton. That left a lot to be desired. I watched that game and it was quite a painful watch. I certainly think that the supporters will be boosted if the announcement of Ten Hag comes sooner rather than later. The suggestions are in reports and in the media that Ten Hag will be the man and then you know, Leipzig coming in to try and hijack that. I don't know whether that's just a bit of paper talk like Marley says. I'm not privy to any inside information or anything. This is just purely my opinion, but... I think that you know this is almost maybe a case of Ten Hag's camp going. Come on, lads, let's let's get this over the line. You know, sort of the the, the vultures are circling around my client. Let's get this signed up and done. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not suggesting that that is what's happened, but it certainly feels like there's an element of that to me. Absolutely, with the summer transfer window in mind, I think the talks need to have been extensive and they need to have been positive between Ten Hag and Manchester United because there is work to be done at Old Trafford, and I think that's clear to see from the weekend's performance. I think Ralph Rangnick has come in and he's spoken well. He's spoken with honesty. The performances have left a a decent bit to be desired, whether that's on the managerial team, whether that's on the players, whether there are other factors at play we aren't in the know on uh, effectively. So um, Ten Hag will know the plan that he needs to come up with to try and get Manchester United firing again because I certainly feel that there is a massive change needed at Manchester United if they are going to compete with City and Liverpool again. And I think that Sunday's game showed how far ahead those two sides are. And Ten Hag's signature will give the fans a lift. I think it will certainly give the players something to aspire towards because if a new manager is coming in in the summer, you're almost effectively on trial for the final six, seven Mm. games of the season trying to impress him. And, you know, with this Dutch mentality that he brings, I think that there's a a likelihood that he and Rangnick, should they be working together or whoever it might be pulling the strings above board, uh, I think that there could be a ruthlessness at Manchester United this summer and it's a ruthlessness that might well be needed to get the club back to where they should be. So, yeah, I do think that signing it sooner rather than later will be of a benefit to Manchester United, but these things don't happen quickly and we've seen that over the course of history. Marley says that the size of the job won't put the likes of Ten Hag off. But when you look at it from his point of view, you've got Manchester United who potentially could be without European football again next season, depending mm. how the rest of... It the... might be Conference League at this rate, I think. Well, yeah, we, mm. we don't know. That. That's going to pan out over the next few weeks. But yeah, it's looking tricky for them to get into even Europa League. And then you look at the managers that have come before him, the graveyard of managers, David Moyes, Van Hal, Mourinho, who actually, now we look through the last couple of years... Maybe he didn't do as bad a job as everyone suggested at the time. Solskjaer going in, now Ralph Rangnick, who isn't doing particularly well at Manchester United. It's a massive job. And if you're a manager, you don't want to damage your reputation by being the latest person to, I'm going to say fail, maybe that's not fair, but fail, inverted commas, at Manchester United. I understand that, but also have we not got to a point now where Manchester United have tried an array of different managers and it hasn't worked Mm. and... 
yeah, okay, you can talk about reputational damage, but I think Marley's spot on in what he says is that Ten Hag's got nothing to lose by taking on one of the biggest club jobs in world football. Now, Ajax is a huge club, and for people thinking that, you know, he's just playing in a stadium with 2,000 people against go-ahead Eagles every week, you know, there's there's a, there's obviously an argument to suggest <laughs> that that is, <laughs> that is the case, but, you know, Ajax get 55,000 at home. So, you know, in terms of the managerial expectations of a big club and a mantra, I think he can deal with that quite well. And speaking to a, a few people who were Manchester United supporters over the weekend, it's the freshness of Ten Hag coming in. Not a lot of people know much about him. A lot of people think that he's this young up-and-coming manager. He's 53. <laughs> you know, he's not hes not a young guy. He, he's seen a fair bit. You know, we've only really seen much of him in the last few years, but maybe he does have that freshness that he can bring to the Manchester United job, which has been missing in the other candidates. You know, Solskjaer came in as an interim stopgap, did so well they had no choice but to give him the job, and that was the right decision at the time. Van Hal came with a reputation, Mourinho came with a reputation, Moyes was allegedly cherry-picked by Ferguson. So you've got all of these managers with caveats. This feels like this could be the first time that Manchester United elect a manager to come and take over who doesn't have any of that previous reputational baggage or mm-hmm. reputational um, sort of atmosphere surrounding them. And he could come in and provide a freshness. And I think that even if they, let's say, opt for Pochettino, he does have that reputational um, cloud hanging over him of this is what he's done at Tottenham. This is how it's gone at PSG. With Ten Hag, it, it's almost if he fails, everyone goes, well, they've signed a guy from Ajax. It was always going to be tough. What do they expect? If he succeeds, it breeds that element of we've got the next big thing. Yeah, we've yeah. got the manager who really is going to be pulling up trees in the next few years. So I think actually with this Ten Hag appointment, if it is to be him, I think that there are elements to it that might suit Manchester United at this moment in time. And um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a case of maybe he might damage his reputation. But I, I don't think having managed Ajax successfully, if it does go belly up at Manchester United, I don't think he'll have any problems in getting another job for sure, if that is to be the case. Ten Hag still the favourite, Marley. Mauricio Pochettino still being linked. Brendan Rodgers still being linked. Antonio Conte is high up in the odds as well. Ralph Hasenhutl even features in the top <laughs> 10 potential managers that Manchester United could be lining up. Ten Hag, the kind of leading candidate for you for all the reasons that Niall says? Yeah, just um, I think they, they seem to have, like looking at, at the sort of rumours and stuff, they seem to have settled on him. You know, f- fine. Um, if you back him, then then great. But uh, I I don't think it's a, a perfect fit because Ajax is such a unique club that it's very hard to transition to a, a club that runs very very differently in a in a very different league and everything like that. So I I can't see it being a massive success. But um, there's no there's no more obvious choice than him. Like it's between them two. And Pochettino, yeah, I can see him back at Spurs one day, for example, Pochettino, not not any other English club, really. Um, so, yeah, Ten Hag's probably the, the leading candidate. And if you if you get behind him and, and back him and trust his style and his judgment on players and, and the way he likes to run things, then he could be a success. Um, but I do think the, the problems at Man United are, are bigger than anything that one single manager can um, can sort out by himself sort of thing. We're going to leave that there and watch with interest how that unfolds at Manchester United. But next, we're going to finish off our Monday podcast with a bit of a moan, getting the sea or whatever we're calling it now, on the way next <laughs> on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Maybe we should just call this Moan Day. Monday Moan Day or something like that. Just a whinge about something that's worried us or upset us over the weekend. Don't need to give me an excuse to complain about something, I can tell you that. It is a good opportunity (laughs) to vent spleen over what's happened in the weekend's Premier League action. Any volunteers to go first on this one? Noel says yes, he's in there. Go on, Noel. What do you want to have a whinge about? I want to have a whinge about something that happened last midweek. It didn't actually happen this weekend, but I've waited all the way till today (laughs) to vent about it. Whether you boys agree or not, I don't know. This whole thing of when Atletico Madrid played Manchester City Mm. and the players were walking out onto the pitch, there's a big (laughs) Manchester City badge on the carpet (laughs) in the tunnel. And the players were like tiptoeing around it. And everyone on Twitter, all the clap emojis, oh, great respect from the... It's a piece of (laughs) carpet, lads. (laughs) I mean, what what, what do you expect? It's the tunnel of a football pitch. People are going to be walking on it with muddy boots. And, and then my favourite bit was Antoine Griezmann just, just danced over it. I was going to say, did you see Griezmann? He, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't even see it. <laughs> he just danced over it. But I don't understand this. That, to me, that doesn't no, I can't scream think, I can't disrespectful. Think of, I can't think of anything Luis Suarez has done in his career that could be deemed disrespectful. Well, surely, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Surely the disrespect there, if you're looking at disrespect, the disrespect is Manchester City putting the badge in a carpet in the first place. I, I don't if there is think any about kind that. Of, I mean, there was a game um, where... Uh, United played against Man City and Ander Herrera was walking off the pitch a few years ago and decided he was going to spit on the badge. Now, okay, yeah, some people might call that what we like to sometimes say on the show, housery or whatever. Mm. I mean, that's that's disrespectful to an extent and I can understand why people would, as they say up north, see their arse about that. But walking over a badge, which is embroidered into a piece of carpet in the tunnel at the Etihad, I'm sure when that was commissioned and whoever fitted the carpet in the tunnel, I'm sure they would have expected to be back there and cleaning it once or twice a season or even yeah. laying a new one down. So that is something that just wound me up. It's a piece of bloody carpet, lads. Like, who cares? Who cares if they tiptoe around it? And just the, the sycophantic loving over someone not walking on a piece of carpet, it just I just didn't understand that. I've been to plenty of like football hospitality areas where the carpet is actually has hundreds <laughs> of the badge sewn into it. And yeah. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to float across the room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Segway. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It is a bit crazy. It is just a carpet. It is just a badge. And I, I mean, I guess it... The comparison is something like the This Is Anfield sign as you go into Liverpool. That's the kind of thing they're trying to create around it, I guess. Uh, maybe. I don't know. but Not from the club's point of view, from the fans' point of view, more than anything know, else. But that This Is Anfield sign, you know, you, people aren't taking milkshakes down the tunnel and <laughs> winging them at the sign, are they, or anything like that? The thing just... is, I've always thought about that This Is Anfield sign because it's clearly not on a, on a hook, is it? Because I'd just go past and just... Just prod it off. Do you know what it is? So it must be like glued into the wall. It reminds me of one of those, uh, you know, in the the urinals, you've got them them clip things that you open up, that you put posters inside. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 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 One day it's This Is Anfield, the next it's like an advert for Bob's Carpet Cleaning Service or something like that, whatever they like. Right, that's Niall's moan for the weekend. Uh, What are you going for, Marley? I've got one, um, and it's from the Crystal Palace game at the weekend um, against uh, Leicester. So, to, it's sort of it's there's two parts to this, um, but it all is centered around Wilfred Zaha's penalty um, that he took to to make it two one. Um, firstly, so it, he takes it, uh, and Schmeichel saves it, and 
it's uh, it goes away, and then the the VAR says, oh, you know, there's possible encroachment, right? And encroachment is one of the most stupid things to get wound up about, but I get wound up about it all the time because number one, it happens on every single penalty, regardless of the outcome. Whether it goes in, there's players always in the box when the ball's struck, whether it's a foot or you know two feet or whatever, or you know people jostling to try and get to a potential rebound um and it doesn't get punished every week and it sometimes gets punished in proper random situations like i didn't understand why the penalty save i don't i don't i don't know why it mattered that the that there was encroachment because the penalty got saved so and it flew out to the side so nobody gained an advantage from encroaching mm. it made no sense yeah one like, like cancels I could, the other out i see yeah, what you mean i yeah. could understand if um schmeichel came off his line because i thought at first oh schmeichel must have came off his line because he always comes off his line but um, is it that zahar could have been distracted by no the players are behind him yeah running into the box you can't Depends how far they encroach you can't hear someone <laughs> over a crowd <laughs> mr tickle just like yeah. leaning forward <laughs> yeah um but yeah that so that was mad that was the first thing right um that wound me up and then the second thing was after the second one, <laughs> after the second one, which he also missed, then it bounced back to him and he headed it in, right? And then Zahar runs away to the crowd, proper celebrating, giving it the big and put, putting his tongue out and, you know, pointing in it and like, gesturing to himself like, yeah, yeah. It's like, number one, Wilf, you've missed two penalties in the space <laughs> of a minute and you've got very, very lucky that it's came back to you and you've headed it into an empty net. And number two, you're still 2-1 down. With 25 <laughs> minutes to go, you're still 2-1 down. You do one thing in that situation. You grab the ball because you sent Michael the wrong way. You grab the ball, you get back to the, to the halfway line and you celebrate as you're running back. But no, nah, not him, not Zaha. He, he just runs off to the sideline, finds the Palace fans, starts giving it all this and then runs you know, runs away, celebrates, and then they still lose the game 2-1. Mainly because, Wilf, you've missed two penalties in the space of 60 seconds but then you're absolutely buzzing that you've headed the ball into an empty net. And, yeah, just another thing which winds me up about Zaha. And he even gave the ball away for Leicester's first goal. So in the in the grand scheme <laughs> mm-hmm. of the game, if, you, if you're going by, like, Wilfred Zaha's breakdown, penalties missed, two. <laughs> Stupid celebrations, one. Goals cost your side, one. There are so, some individuals in football, aren't there, that it feels like it's more about them as a player than it is about their team. And one of the people I'd put into that category oh, would probably be the person that I'm putting in the sea, which is Cristiano Ronaldo. And I'm sure you've seen the video of the weekend of him walking off the pitch after the Everton loss and knocking, well, appearing, I'll say actually, to knock the phone out of an Everton fan's hand. I say appearing, but that's the story that's been delivered by the Everton fan in question and his mum and also Ronaldo to a certain extent who went on social media afterwards and said he apologised for his outburst afterwards and offered the Everton fan an opportunity to come to a Manchester United game (laughs) as his guest. It's like, why is that an appealing thing? Surely that would be horrible for an Everton fan. But my kind of issue here with Cristiano Ronaldo, and I'm not Ronaldo's biggest fan, despite the fact my son has started doing the Sioux celebration, as a Man City fan, oh, started God. doing the Sioux celebration, which makes me dislike him even more. What, your son your or son, Ronaldo? Both. <laughs> yeah, so one of them needs a clip. Yeah. And I don't fancy your chances of getting Cristiano anytime soon. But it's more about footballers behaving like kids 
because Ronaldo is 37 years old. He's 37 <laughs> years old mm. and he's behaving like a man child. He's unable to control his emotions. And I understand that he is disappointed and he's going to be frustrated by the season he is having at Manchester United. This wasn't supposed to be the story that he'd written. This wasn't supposed to be his swan song. But if you can't control your emotions to the extent that you have to knock a mobile phone out of a child's hand as you're leaving the pitch because you're so upset, that is not the behaviour of a 37-year-old. That is the behaviour of a stroppy toddler. And that causes me to question his whole personality <laughs> and him as an individual. We all get the red mist, right? Yeah, yeah Everyone yeah. gets it at some point, whether it's sporting or not. Otherwise, you see anger, you see that. But when you get beyond the age of, what, 20... Yeah, yeah. You learn to control that. Do you know what? I think it's a really good debate that can be opened up about this. And I think it's because of the culture we have in English football. There aren't many stadiums like Goodison Park mm. in La Liga or in Serie A. And it's obviously been, what, 12 years since Cristiano Ronaldo last played Premier League football before this season. And I think that with a hostile Goodison Park, having just beaten Manchester United 1-0, you're walking down the tunnel and you've got Everton fans literally on top of you mm. within touching distance of you you're shit, Ronaldo you're terrible you're past it you're gone he wouldn't have got that in Italy no and he wouldn't have got that in Spain um, but he should be able to cope with that he should be able to cope it's with that it's like Jamie totally. I'm not trying to find an excuse here for Cristiano Ronaldo at all but I just think that I think it shows that you know you need to have a thick skin mm. to be able to play in English football because some of the stick that you get from the fans, some of the abuse you get is shocking. Which isn't mm. fair. And I'm not, I don't, there's no I, way of justifying the abuse because nobody deserves to be no, abused. No, and I get that. But imagine job. if you're someone like, I don't know, uh, Mark Noble or... Dark oh, dream. <laughs> yeah. Someone like Mark Noble. Yeah, or Gareth Barry or someone like that who, who played hundreds of games and you've been given dog's abuse for your whole career. You're this, you're this. Mm. I mean... You must develop a thick skin pretty quickly if you're a Premier League footballer. And if you don't, you're going to get found out in situations like what we saw Ronaldo do mm. um, by hitting the phone out of the pan. I just wonder if Ronaldo had stayed in the Premier League for the last 12 years, would he have reacted to that? I don't think he would have done because I think he would have been seasoned to it. And I think he is just beginning now to adapt back to life in the Premier League. And you know, for the last 12 years, he's been on the top of the game, winning everything, playing for teams that are always winning and it's easy to, to win and suck up the abuse when you're winning but sucking up the abuse when you're losing is a different thing mm. and so I think maybe that there's an element of that just me giving my opinion there not excusing what he did I saw the footage of him hitting what I, appears to be a phone out of someone's hand and it's not good and he has a, he has apologised in all fairness so. I've got I've got beef with the whole situation me like from every different angle number one why did he do it like like you've, you've just yeah, said because he lost control, and like yeah. I say, you shouldn't lose control. Yeah. Number two, why did he not get angry before that or after that? Why was it at that specific point? But even from the other point of view, number the third thing is why is an Everton fan filming a Ronaldo thing? <laughs> like why? Like don't film. That's just the proper stupid. against modern football rant. We've yeah, got it is. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It, it is. But and also there's this new thing of uh, you know the, he slapped a phone out the kid's hand and he's got autism and dyspraxia. Why does that matter? I don't see why that matters at all. Like, oh, oh you know, it's even worse because he's autistic. Well, Ronaldo wouldn't It's have the known same. That exactly. Time. Yeah, how's he to know that? How's he to know? How's he to stop his reaction? He can't stop. He should have stopped his reaction anyway, so he mm. did it anyway. So it doesn't make any... It does matter, 
but it's not important in terms of the context of the event. Exactly, the event but you as see, it happened. It's important to the context afterwards because the, the the debate is the impact that could have on that individual going forward, which Ronaldo wasn't to know about. Yeah, but it's the kind of things that you need to be considering if you are a professional footballer in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, he, if that he, makes sense. He yeah, but he's all, himself, but he's already he? lost it. Yeah, so. He doesn't help. It himself. could have been anyone. It could have been a blind guy. It could have been a deaf guy. It could have been anything. Mm. Yeah. But oh, oh, the kid's got the kids. He hasn't got a massive sign around his head saying I've got autism. Don't slap this phone out the hand. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Every it's just the media. The way they think they they find something and make it yeah. bigger. And I, it, I just don't really like it. It was absolutely stupid from Cristiano Ronaldo. It was poor from him. He shouldn't have done it. We all agree that he's apologised. Um, I'm not really sure what else we can. No, it, should, it, it probably should be the end of the matter now. I think, for me, it questions where Cristiano Ronaldo is in terms of his temperament. And like we talk about, whether we're going to management, if you if that's your kind of, if that is how you behave, yeah, then that doesn't make you a good. That doesn't put you into a good football manager. Like Roy Keane never went and slapped a fan or anything like that, did he? Well, we just didn't have well, mobiles. Let's, yeah. let's let's just just bring another conversation. Eric Cantona is utterly revered by not just Manchester United fans, but other fans. This geezer kung fu kicked yeah. a member of the public yeah. and is considered an iconic Premier League player, a legend. Mm. Ronaldo has slapped the phone out of someone's hand and smashed it. Okay, it's very poor behaviour. Cantona kung fu kicked someone and was banned from playing football for a mm. series of months. And this guy is considered an absolute icon. That, so, so the hypocrisy it's the time, and the it? double the standards is absolutely staggering because Eric Cantona was 100% I mean it wasn't he didn't kung fu kick that Crystal Palace fan and everyone heralded him a hero at that point he was he was villain number one yeah for us but now everyone looking back is saying oh you know remember when he booted this fan in the face it's yeah. just not actually that funny really is it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he came out with that bizarre quote to make it sort of draw attention didn't he when, when the seagull follows the trawler mm. what? Yeah, yeah. what are you on about yeah. That's a brilliant story. This is a slight distraction and it relates to another podcast I made, which I make a podcast called The Excess Long Player, which is like talking to artists about their classic albums. And I was talking to Rick from Ash about their album 19... What's the album called? 1977, isn't it? And the single on that, Kung Fu. And the single in the UK, the cover art to Kung Fu is Eric Cantona doing the Kung Fu kick. Now, they weren't allowed to use that in France because in France, the rights to images work slightly different. So in the UK, the image belongs to the person who took the photo. In yeah. France, the image belongs to the person who is in the Who's photo. In the photo yeah. So Ash had to write to Eric Cantona <laughs> and say, we want to use this photo of you kung fu kicking this um, this, French, this uh, Crystal Palace fan on the cover of our single. Can we use it? And Eric Cantona sent a fax back, apparently, and the fax just went... I spit on your record. <laughs> that was it. And so they had to use a different cover in the uh, in the single in French. But anyway, that's it. That is it for today's Football Social Daily. We'll finish on that story. Back again tomorrow with more of the latest Premier League news. Loads of European action this week as well. So we'll keep you abreast of that when it comes to the Premier League teams. Cheers, boys. Cheers, guys. Cheers, lads. Don't forget to hit subscribe and follow. And we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.